TVO podcast, Gibisinda Nawa. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Sovereignty is the ability for a people to make their own decisions, to speak and be heard. For Indigenous people battling generations of colonization, we express our sovereignty in many different ways. Through living our lives as our authentic Indigenous selves, through our leadership, stories, and teachings, and through our art. Join us, Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk, on The Art of Sovereignty. In each episode, we explore the history and lives of First Nations artists who would not let others define them. They fought against the currents and used their work and their influence to break barriers and bring Indigenous perspectives to the forefront. The following podcast mentions residential schools. The Indian Residential School Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience. Call 1-800-721-0066. Please take care while listening. Chris Indishnikas, Mishisagig Anishinaabe Ndao, Pemadushkadeang Ndunjaba no Gojiawang Deda. I'm Chris Beaver, and from TVO Podcasts, this is The Art of Sovereignty. Canada has a long history of misrepresenting Indigenous peoples in the media, with stereotypical portrayals that lock us in the past. Assumptions are made about how we're supposed to act, what our history is supposed to be, how we're supposed to express ourselves, and even how we're supposed to look. I'm often told that I don't look Indigenous, but I am. I'm half Anishinaabe with a status card to prove it. I was raised on reserve around my aunties, uncles, cousins, and grandparents. If we ever saw a porcupine roadkill, we took it to Granny Beaver's house for her quill work. We attended potlatch ceremonies and powwows. I would hunt, fish, and trap with my friends. We'd play bingo, ride bikes, eat ice cream, and go to church on Sunday. You know, indigenous stuff. Despite my home, Despite my family, despite my life, I'm told that I don't look the part. I don't fit the stereotype. As an indigenous artist, Carl Beam was often told that his art didn't look the part, that he didn't fit the stereotype. But Beam wasn't interested in creating art that people expected of him. Throughout his career, he challenged and deconstructed the boundaries that were set before indigenous artists. In an interview, Beam said, I'm tired of the intellectual limitations that people try to impose on themselves. Canadian art, native art, native artists. World art is related to my art. I am the world. I am a part of the world. I am an equal part to any part of the world. He proudly embraced his indigenous identity while refusing to present himself or his thinking as just indigenous. First and foremost, he was a contemporary artist. His work rebelled against cultural categorization, and he forced a new way of thinking about Indigenous art. Beam's work opened the door for Indigenous artists to step out of the constraints of what was considered Indigenous art and into the full range of contemporary expression. For this episode, I spoke to Anong Migwans Beam, daughter of the late Carl Beam and artist Anne Weatherby. Carl and Anne met in Toronto in 1979, the two were immediately inseparable and married within a few months. Anong was born shortly after. Her full name is Anoganese, which means little star in Ojibwe. Raising Anong, 
Carl and Anne nurtured her artistic development and connection to her Ojibwe roots. Today, Anong is a painter, mother, printmaker, curator, and the owner of a company called Beam Paints. She's a high achiever, like her father. I found Anong inquisitive, knowledgeable, vulnerable, and heartfelt, and her admiration for her father ran deep. At the time of our conversation, Anong was finalizing a manuscript called Carl Beam, Life and Work, to be published by the Art Canada Institute. Anong spoke to me by video chat from her home in Chiging First Nation on Manitoulin Island. Recording in progress. Thank you so much for being willing to uh, do this uh, on a weekend to make it work for us. No, my pleasure. So who was Carl Beam as a person and an artist? You know, that's a tough question. He was many things to many people. He was a critical thinker and his ability to step outside of limiting thought paradigms, his attention and philosophical interest on the nature of thought and how it affects humans, how, how our lives are affected by thought, was really at the core of his being as, as it related to his own personal freedom and his views on humanity. He wasn't purely interested in the Indigenous experience. He was interested in the mechanics of how one group of people can subjugate another group. Carl Beam was an internationally acclaimed artist of Anishinaabe descent. His style is reminiscent of American artists such as Robert Rauschenberg, Andy Warhol, and Joseph Beuys. His works are innovative and unique. Beam's practice included photography, paint and text, sculpture, ceramics, etching, lithography, screen processes, and performance art. His worldview was informed by Western and Eastern philosophy, Zen Buddhism, indigenous teachings, and lots of Martin Heidegger. The nature of his work is personal, political, challenging, and thought-provoking. Burying the Ruler is a self-portrait of Beam with a standard school ruler in his hand and his legs washed out, fading into whiteness. One interpretation is that it's about the erasure of indigenous identity through the measure of blood quantum. The act of burying the ruler may be about moving on from the pain of his residential school experience. One art historian described him as an artist of eloquent anger. He was not afraid to curse people out if they questioned the indigeneity of his expression. Museum directors, curators, anyone. In his personal life, Beam was dedicated to his family and community. He was an early proponent of truth and reconciliation. He used his influence to speak out against residential schools at a time when nobody else was. In 1987, Beam became the first Indigenous artist to have work purchased by the National Gallery of Canada as a contemporary artist, which opened the door for generations of Indigenous artists to follow. Carl Beam overcame incredible adversity and accomplished a great deal in his 62 years of life. On May 24, 1943, Carl Edward Migwans was born in Chiging First Nation, which was then known as West Bay on Manitoulin Island. The last name Beam came later in life. His mother, Barbara Migwans, was the daughter of Dominic Migwans and Annie Commanda. His grandfather Dominic was the chief of West Bay at the time of Carl's birth. His father was an American soldier named Edward Cooper. My grandmother, Barbara Miguance, had fallen in love with an American soldier 
In the middle of World War II, she meets Edward Cooper. They fall in love and she's 18 at the time. She becomes pregnant with my father. They are engaged to be married. He brings her across the border off of the reserve to Philadelphia to meet his mother. And back in those times, you have to remember you needed a pass to be able to leave. You couldn't just go where you wanted. Edward Cooper and Barbara Mugwants, they were so confident with their, their love and their plans. Multiracial marriages, they weren't really done back then. So they were engaged to be married. Instead of marrying them, the priest reported him as AWOL. The military police came in the middle of the night and they took him away. And he died in 1944. He never saw Barbara again. He never got to meet my dad. Beam was mostly raised by his grandparents, Dominic and Annie, who recognized the strength of his character at a young age. Especially when Dominic shot a menacing bear and baby Carl fearlessly crawled up to play with the dead bear's face. The bear became something of an alter ego for Beam and a prominent feature across his work. When Beam was a child, his mother had a dream about him that would disrupt the course of his life dramatically. In her dream, he was standing on the steps of the parliament buildings in Ottawa by the Canadian flag, and he was well-dressed. And she felt that he, he was destined for something great, something important, and she was determined that he get an education. She herself had wanted to be a teacher, and she wasn't allowed to go to school because she was the oldest daughter. She had to stay and help raise the younger children. From age 10 through 18, Beam attended Garnier Residential School in Spanish Ontario, which was infamous for abuse, neglect, and appalling conditions. His mother sent him with the best of intentions, unaware of the hardships he would face. Some people had an okay time at residential school. He had the textbook terrible time. He was sexually abused by a priest. He was an altar boy. He went speaking Ojibwe. He was beaten and starved and neglected until he couldn't speak it anymore. He learned English, he learned Latin, he learned about religion, and he dropped out in grade 10. The abuse Beam experienced at residential school had a significant impact on his life and worldview, which he explored through his art. He was searching to understand how people could do what they had done to him and all the other kids who went through that. But uh, he came he came through it like a like a warrior. Despite the life-altering trauma that he experienced in residential school, he overcame the adversities of his youth and turned them into strengths. He reversed this narrative of oppression into one of victory against the nefarious objectives of Indian Affairs. The Federal Department of Indian Affairs was the name of the branch of government that dealt with Indigenous policy. 
They created the Indian Act, which was a collection of policies governing the lives of indigenous peoples. This included racially oppressive policies such as segregated communities, known as reserves, prohibition of culture and residential schools, to name a few. In 1910, Duncan Campbell Scott was the head of Indian Affairs. At that time, the squalid conditions of residential schools had led to a tuberculosis outbreak that was killing students at an alarming rate. Here's what Scott had to say about it. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habitating so closely in these schools, and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is being geared towards the final solution of our Indian problem. In 1920, when residential school became mandatory for Indigenous children, this is how Scott justified it. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. That is the objective of this bill. Meanwhile, as Canada tried to take care of its Indian problem, half a world away, another group of people tried to persevere through the deadliest of oppressions. In 1940, the German army invaded the Netherlands, carrying out Hitler's plan for the mass genocide of Jews during World War II. This plan was officially called the Final Solution to the Jewish Question. Eerily similar to the language used by Duncan Campbell Scott over 20 years earlier, Hitler biographer John Toland wrote, "Hitler's concept of concentration camps, as well as the practicality of genocide." Owed much to his studies of British and North American history, he often praised to his inner circle the efficiency of America's extermination by starvation and uneven combat of the Red Savages. At the time of Beam's birth in 1943, two Jewish families in Amsterdam were hiding to escape Nazi concentration camps. They spent over two years in the secret annex of a house. Among them was a young girl named Anne Frank who kept a diary. Here's an excerpt. In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. I see the world gradually being turned into a wilderness. I hear the ever-approaching thunder, which will destroy us too. I can feel the suffering of millions, and yet, if I look up into the heavens. I think that it will all come right. That this cruelty too will end, and that peace and tranquility will return again. Eventually, the families were captured and deported to a concentration camp, where Anne eventually died from typhus. Like so many others, Anne died because of her ethnicity. Anne Frank's diary is now published in over 70 languages and is one of the most widely read books of the 20th century. It has been a source of profound inspiration for many, including Carl Beam. He really started looking inwardly in his work to the experience of Anne Frank, and reading about Anne Frank really gave him the confidence to address his own personal experience with residential schools directly in his work. So he had me read the diary of Anne Frank when I was 
five. And around that time, we traveled with uh, his exhibition. And when we were in the Netherlands, we went to Anne Frank's house. And it's a museum to her and to her experience. And when we were there, he gave a press conference in front of the Anne Frank Museum. And he was standing there in his suit and he had painted half of his face red. And he told the reporters there that he was there from North America and that he was representing indigenous people, Indian people. And he said that these same things that they're warning about at the Anne Frank Museum, that these things were ongoing in Canada, in the new world that people were being isolated and abused for the race that they belong to, for their culture. And people couldn't really understand the idea of what a residential school wasn't understood. During this time, there were still residential schools and Indian day schools operating in Canada. The last one closed in 1996. Most people in the world were not aware of their existence, let alone the horrors they were perpetrating. Many Canadians only learned the truth in 2015 with the release of reports by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. While the story of Anne Frank and the heroics of Canadians in World War II were taught as a part of Canada's post-war identity, residential schools were left out of the history books. The Truth and Reconciliation Report documented the widespread physical and sexual abuse and malnutrition suffered by children in residential schools. In the 1940s and 50s, government policy had led to a crisis of widespread malnutrition in Indigenous communities and residential schools. In an article called The Dark History of Canada's Food Guide, How Experiments on Indigenous Children Shaped Nutrition Policy, the CBC reported, federal bureaucrats saw this as an opportunity to test some scientific theories. A lot of why we know what we know about nutritional values was learned off of the suffering of Indigenous children in care and where they would find out, well, how much vitamin C do you actually need? What are the daily recommended doses for calcium and what happens to you when you don't get them? We'd know that because they found that out at these schools. And the records of medical testing on Indigenous children in care. I know my own father, he suffered really badly with his teeth. At the end of his life, he didn't have any any of his teeth and he had lost all of the enamel to his teeth at residential school. And that was a, it was hard on his pride and his, his health. And uh, it was one of the scars that he carried from being there. Beam dropped out of residential school in grade 10 and finished high school through correspondence courses. After that, he did a number of labor and construction jobs. And he worked on a hydroelectric dam project in British Columbia, where he was knocked into a giant turbine and narrowly escaped death. After that, he returned to school in search of a different livelihood, enrolling in a drafting program at the Kootenai School of Art in Nelson, British Columbia. He took a minor in fine arts and excelled, so he transferred into a fine arts major. Eventually, he transferred to the University of Victoria, where he graduated in 1974. The following year, Beam started a Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. 
By this time, he had proven to be a gifted printmaker and had developed his own technique for photo etching. He was planning to do his master's thesis on the work of renowned Native American artist, Fritz Scholder. In 1970, Scholder wrote, I would say that the new Indian art is certainly influenced by what is happening today in contemporary art. If you consider that for the first time, Indian artists have realized that they do live in the whole world, not only the Indian world. So it is contemporary, but it is very Indian. Beam's MFA thesis proposal was denied because it was not considered to be serious enough for academia. He withdrew from the program and returned to Ontario to work as a full-time contemporary artist. The only acceptable form of recognized Indigenous art at that time was the Woodland School of Art, which had been established by Norval Morisot. Beam respectfully rejected the boundaries of the Woodland School to pursue his own path. In 1979, Beam met Anong's mother, Anne Weatherby. They married, had Anong, and the young family moved to New Mexico. This was a creatively fertile time of artistic exploration and experimentation for Beam. He was especially interested in Native American pottery techniques of the Southwest. But over time, Beam became dissatisfied with the Southwestern art scene. And he felt his work was important for Canada. He felt that he could make a difference. In 1983, the family returned to Canada and settled in Peterborough, Ontario, where they lived in rent-controlled housing for Indigenous people. The housing was administered by Indian Affairs, the same branch of government that was running the residential school system. It was in this house that Beam created his masterpiece called The North American Icebreak. It's a tour de force. It shows him in his unique command of material and process. In a normal painting, you build from the back and your very last touches are what you see in the, in the front of the painting. But on plexiglass, everything has to be done in reverse. His name, he, he had to sign backwards. He did it in our house in Peterborough and he had no studio. We lived in a house with no furniture, a kitchen table and an etching press and he built that painting in the living room. He did it as a response to a show that was at the AGO called the European Iceberg. And it was curated to show the vibrancy of the European school of painting. He responded by calling his painting the North American Iceberg. Beam made history in 1987 with the North American Iceberg as the first Indigenous artist to have his work purchased by the National Gallery of Canada. You have to say the first openly Indigenous because they did purchase work from other artists who were quietly doing their own work without drawing attention to their background. Because if you wanted to participate in the modern art landscape as a equivalent equal to any artist, you had to pretend or avoid the fact that you were native, and some people did that. He had the warriorship to demand that people had to accept the fact that he was an indigenous artist with contemporary concerns. And this purchase was a significant turning point or considered to be so, but in the end, what did he think about it? In the end, he's, he's quoted uh, multiple places as saying that he was honored at first, and then he realized that he felt that he was used politically, and that they still bought that painting from Carl the Indian. 
and not from Carl, the artist. At that time, contemporary artists taking inspiration from indigenous culture was nothing new. But the idea of an indigenous artist making truly contemporary art was just unheard of. He's still viewed through this lens as an indigenous artist when he specifically was battling for the right to be considered as an artist first. The same way that an artist of French or German descent would be considered a contemporary artist, he wanted to be considered in the same thought pool as other artists that he admired. Beam refused to be boxed in. He would not let others define him and his culture as something from the past, and he chose a bold contemporary artistic style to deliver his message. The main expression of Indigenous art in those days was that it was the expression of a dying culture. It was viewed through an anthropological lens as remnants of culture to be collected, to be described and preserved so that later we could look back and say, this is who these people were. There was a notion that Indigenous people were dying and disappearing. It was a political construct that has been ongoing. <laughs> Even currently, we're still battling with remnants of these, these notions and policies. Indigenous art had only recently moved from the museums to the galleries. Since there was so little of it accepted in the public eye, Beam found that the definition most people had of Indigenous art was very narrow. There was this view. The only people who were painting were people like Norval Morisot. My father was asked, do you feel like Norval Morisot? He opened the door for Indigenous art. He responded by saying, Norval opened the door for Norval. Anything that didn't look like it wasn't accepted as an expression of Indian art or Native art. While the art industry expected Beam to take inspiration from his Indigenous artistic culture, he drew his inspiration from big contemporary artists of his time. That's what he was fighting for, his right to be a human expressing ideas in modern times. I think that the people in the Indigenous side of the woodland style, they wanted to say that he was in a European style. But I think that any person who's living now would have to agree that all of the abilities and techniques available at, the, at a modern time belong to all humans who are able to access them. He looked at his use of modern technology and modern thought structures and paradigms as fully expressing the inner Carl, the inner person. He wasn't in a European style of art. He was at the vanguard of creating a contemporary expression of his personal soul. Beam would deliberately subvert viewer expectations of Indigenous art with cheeky, brazen, and defiant works. In 1980, Beam had his first solo exhibition at a gallery in Thunder Bay, Ontario. I wish I could have been there as a fly on the wall when they unveiled Self-Portrait in My Christian Dior Bathing Suit. It's a large-scale watercolor of a very serious-looking Beam in a Speedo-style swimsuit, with his legs apart and his hand on his hip in a warrior's stance. 
today he is standing there in his Christian Dior bathing suit. Native people at that time weren't really allowed to have Christian Dior bathing suits. <laughs> That's one of the funny things. We weren't considered to exist in the modern times, especially in our prosperous modern time where we might want to have a Christian Dior bathing suit. That alone is a real tongue-in-cheek kind of joke. But then at the bottom is a dialogue between himself and the viewer. The punchline at the end of it is, I am Carl Beam. I had to live so you can see this. I'm marking my time and my life in this way. That work was so revolutionary. People were shocked. How could you call that Indian art? It's not Indian art. It is, it was, and that marked a turning point in the dialogue about what could be considered Indigenous art. Beam's work stands out in the history of Indigenous art. He never shied away from the truth and used his work to push forward the conversation of truth and reconciliation, helping to propel Canada to come to terms with its colonial past. As an artist, he pushed back against the boundaries of what Indigenous art can be. It's a political construct that Indianness or indigeneity is tied to a certain visual look that's rooted in a negation of present. That is part of the, the thought process that was built in residential schools and in colonialism. When you rob a society or a group of people of their ability to be current participants in the world, you dehumanize them. I'm so grateful to him for so, so many things. I'm so grateful that he chose to keep me close to him and that he educated me the way that he did art and color and paint. It's the great love affair of my life. He paved the way for me to be able to fully exercise my autonomy as an artistic thinking person in Canada. I get to paint whatever I want. I can paint many medium I want and call it my art and people understand that it is. Nobody has ever told me, no, and um, you can't paint that way. I owe that to him. To see the images referred to in this episode, check out the link in the show notes. The Art of Sovereignty is written and hosted by Chris Beaver and Shelby Lisk. Produced by Ozzy Michelin and Katie O'Connor. Edited by Chris Beaver with assistance from Matthew O'Mara. Lori Few is the executive producer for Digital at TVO. Music by Bedtracks. We'd like to thank the artists and curators who made time to speak with us for the series. Production assistance from Jonathan Hallowell, Nikki Ashworth, and Albert Wisco. Special thanks to the Art Gallery of Peterborough, the Powerplant Gallery, Carleton University, and especially Wanda Nanabush in the Art Gallery of Ontario. <laughs>